Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. We strive, we strive to bring you commentary that's smart, conservative, and non-tribal, and I think that we end up with two out of three. We're pretty happy with that. I'm Charlie Sykes, and it is February 20th, 2018. Black Panther pulled in an astounding $218 million at the box office. CPAC unveils its lineup of speakers. New polls show more support for the GOP tax bill, but not necessarily for a ban on assault rifles. And we don't seem to be any closer to any sort of a deal on immigration or the Dreamers. So joining me on this Tuesday after President's Day, tanned, ready, and rested from the long holiday weekend, Jonathan Last and John McCormick from the Weekly Standard. Thanks for joining me, guys. So I'm, I'm down here in Miami. If, if, you, if you hear the, the background, some noise in the background, it's going to be the construction outside my window because they're building something on every square inch of Miami. And you know what that's all about, right? Everybody from New York is moving down here, you know, particularly with a tax bill. They're all moving down here. So if you, if you hear the construction noise, that's what it is. Okay, let's just start. You guys see the CPAC lineup? The, the folks, for, for folks who don't know, CPAC is, of course, the big uh, gathering of conservatives, kind of the Star Wars bar scene of conservatism. And uh, it really makes quite a statement. You got Sean Hannity, Sheriff David Clark, Nigel Farage, James O'Keefe, Eric Bowling, Seb Gorka, Eric Trump, Judge Janine, Fred Barnes is in there. But, but, but to top it off, um, the French National Front figure, Marion Le Pen, not to be confused with Marine Le Pen. But uh, what is, what's what's going on there? You want to want to take a crack at this one, Jonathan? It's going to be the Trumpiest CPAC ever. <laughs> I mean, I look, I think I looked through the the, the lineup of and it's like eighty speakers or ninety speakers that they have on the website, and I think there's one person there who's semi halfway skeptical of Trump, uh, and it's. So bringing in Nigel Farage, which I think they did last year as well, and then bringing Marine Le Pen. I mean, there is a conscious effort to link up this nationalist populist movement in America with what's going on internationally. And I don't know if that's a good idea or not, frankly. Um, in fact, I, I think it's probably not a great idea. America is different. Our circumstances are different. Uh, I mean, the Le Pen's... Their entire movement is based on a really reactionary uh, approach to immigration, which I have to say you can understand if you have spent any amount of time paying attention to the demographics of France for the last 40 years. Uh, but that is not our situation in America, and it's a little weird that we have people yeah, who think that we should be looking lap, ideologically. Though, yeah, but— yeah, Matchlap though is uh, is insisting that no, no, no. This is this is the this is the classical liberal Le Pen, uh, not to be confused with the proto-fascist anti-Semitic uh, Le Pen. So maybe it's not. So every, um, interesting Twitter back and forth between Jonah Goldberg and Matt Schlapp. So this, this is this is they're not going quietly into this. Yeah, well, I mean, look, Matt will say that until you know Donald Trump decides otherwise, and then Matt will change his mind to do whatever Donald Trump says. Yeah, either of you guys ever hang out at CPAC? Are you are you CPAC guys? Uh, I hung out way, way back. I mean, when I first came to the Standard and I was just fetching coffee for Mr. Barnes, I would, you know, go down to CPAC and hand out, literally stand at a booth handing out copies of the Weekly Standard. Uh, and I that scared me straight. It was like a, you know, juvenile offender diversion program. 
you know, uh-huh. CPAC was always kind of viewed as the Star Wars bar scene, uh, even early on. And so I was always a little scared to go down. I've had to go there to cover some presidential candidates uh, from time to time, but it's definitely a place that uh, you don't really want to spend too much time. That was always my reaction. I was there, and I'm, I'm trying to remember what, what year it was. <laughs> it was a few years ago. It was 2016. And what really struck me about that CPAC was how overwhelmingly anti-Trump the crowd was. So this transformation, remember uh, Donald Trump re- refused to show up. He, did, he was afraid of getting booed or, or some such thing, decided it wasn't his safe space. And as a result, when folks like Marco Rubio uh, spoke, they got huge ovations. And I just remember every anti-Trump line um, throughout the conference was, was, was greeted with a lot of enthusiasm. So it's really remarkable to watch the way that uh, CPAC has just transformed itself into uh, – I think didn't uh, Kelly uh, Kellyanne Conway joke that it was now TPAC, as in you know Trump Political Action Committee? Yeah, she's not wrong. I mean, this is no. In fairness to Trump, it's not like he's changed. <laughs> this, is, yeah, this is the Richard Brookheiser has a great piece in National Review this week about how conservatism has changed and bent itself to Trump. And I'm you know I'm always put in my everybody knows the the famous Lord Acton line about how you know power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But what what a lot of people forget is that that line is not about the person who has power. So when he when Acton was talking about that, he didn't mean that the guy with all the power gets corrupted by it. What he was speaking about was the people surrounding power. And that the people, you know, arranged around a power center are the ones who get corrupted by it because of their need to toady to it and their desire to use it for their various different, uh, their various different ends. And I think you could legitimately say that this is exactly what has happened in the Republican slash conservative movements over the last couple of years. Uh, it's unclear as to whether any of this stuff will be lasting, but I don't know. And look, I don't mean to be taking shots like Matt. Just look at Marco Rubio. I mean, look at the things Marco Rubio used to say about Donald Trump, and now he doesn't. Look at the things Senator Ted Cruz used to say about Donald Trump, and now he doesn't. So this is, I mean, part of this is understandable, which is that Trump is a fact. He is the president. The president is a massive power center, and something has to be done with it. And so I, you know, I would say I am sympathetic to that. I am sympathetic to a lot of people who serve in the administration who are trying to do good uh, but that said, there's a difference between working with a power center and prostituting yourself. And a, a lot of people are able to walk up and not cross that line, and some people are not. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking actually uh, at, the Rick, uh, at the Rick Brookhauser uh, piece, uh, which uh, Bill Crystal cites in, in the Weekly Standard. Uh, and, uh, and Rick writes, uh, the conservative movement is no more. Its destroyers are Donald Trump and his admirers now. I assume that the reason we're on this podcast is that uh, some of us actually want to keep some bright ember of the conservative movement going. So does that overstate the case, uh, John McCormick? I think it, it might. Uh, you know, my problem uh, with you know evangelical social conservatives, it's not necessarily that, that they you know weighed the costs and the benefits and decided that Donald Trump was the lesser evil and they voted for Hillary Clinton. It's the it's the denial um, that Trump has ever done anything wrong. You know, that where where truth and decency and character become casualties of uh, the Trump administration. I don't think that because someone decided that Neil Gorsuch was that important or that that Supreme Court seat was so important uh, that you you had to vote for Trump. That's one thing. And that, but it, it's to take it to another level and say, you know, you know, Eric Erickson has a great review talking about how it's not simply that, well, Trump gave us a good Supreme Court nominee. It's that he is basically the holiest man who has ever walked the earth. Uh, his faith is so deep. Uh, I think that's the real uh, corruption that you have to watch out for. 
Yeah, and the and the re, and the re, and the reason he wants to kiss beautiful women is because it's part of his search for God, right? right. Yeah, well, you know, we're all brought to that uh, for the same reason. Charlie, I have a question for you on this, if if I could be allowed to mm-hmm. things because sure. I'd like to put a quarter in the machine and listen to you dilate on it. It seems to me that other Republican presidents have been subject to a great amount of criticism from within the party. Uh, you know, George W. Bush, God knows, uh, got all sorts of criticism for uh, his Social Security reform proposal, for his immigration amnesty proposal, for his handling of the Iraq War. Uh, his father, George Bush, uh, George H.W. Bush, uh, tremendously looked down upon him. I mean, the conservatives really rebelled against him. There is something different about Trump where it is seen as like heretical. If you know, if, if you're a conservative who criticizes him, then all of a sudden you're, you know, you're a bad never Trumper or something. And I, I wonder what it is about Trump that means that you have to be in for a penny and in for a pound, which is different from previous conservative and Republican presidents. Do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, I have many, many thoughts on this. The, uh, you, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to remember when you had a free shot at criticizing the, the president, even if he was a Republican. Now it, it's some sort of a uh, moral apostasy uh, somehow to uh, you know, raise questions about the, the Orange God King. And by the way, I was on another podcast and I used the term Orange God King. And uh, somebody that we, we both know was deeply offended by that um, because, you know, because this is the most successful president ever, right? I mean, he's, he's going to be—he he will eclipse uh, Abraham Lincoln and George Washington. I don't know. And this is something that I never saw coming. I never thought that, that our side, uh, you know, that our tribe would, would uh, embrace this kind of a cult of personality. Remember, remember just a few you know, minutes ago, we made fun of Democrats for having their cult of personality with, with Barack Obama? And today that looks, uh, that looks relatively modest. I actually can't think of a moment in modern political history where, you know, where at least Republicans or conservatives have decided that uh, that you must, you know, pull the forelock and you, you must, you know, must bow before uh, the president. Uh, otherwise, somehow you're revealing what a cuck you are or what a rhino you are or, or what a liberal Democrat you have become. Do you have a theory on this? I, I have a whole bunch of in, in Joey theories. It is strange, though, that with this president, you're not allowed to say, hey, policies X, Y, and Z are really smart and good. They're doing an excellent job on topic A, B, and C. But we really think he's very wrong about D, F, and G. I mean, you, you just can't have that. And it's weird that you don't see that either. You don't see very many... Uh, Trump. And one of the things I like to do is I ask like my, my super-duper Trumpy friends. I was like, you know, so tell me three things he's done that you disagree with. And they just can't bring themselves to do it. And it isn't because they don't, you know, can't find three things to, to disagree with. They just, you know, well, you know, they want to make excuses about them. They want they feel like they have to be all in. And I don't, I don't John, what do you, do you have thoughts? I, I think the weird thing is actually you, you mm-hmm. do see some criticism on policy grounds, maybe mild, maybe that's very tepid. Uh, but where you can't cross the line uh, if you want to be part of the team is you actually can't criticize him when he does something, you know, uh, immoral or uh, crazy. And if you do that, then you're siding with the media, then you're a cuck. You can say, oh, well, I disagree. I think this you know, trade policy might mm-hmm. not be such a good idea. But if you, you're you then siding with the media. And I do think this is all through the frame of this is the guy who is fighting the, the, the left. He's fighting the media. And if you're, you're either with him or you're against this, this is a, a war. The binary choice continues. It, didn't, it, didn't, it wasn't just Hillary or Trump. It's the media or Trump. And so y- you can criticize him mildly on policy, but you can't say, oh, well, this was a crazy thing to say. This was an, a, a, an awful, immoral thing to do. 
Gee, John, that, that, that is a fascinating point because it basically means the one thing you cannot do is fail to defend the indefensible. The, the most loathsome parts of his character are the ones that, that you can't break. And I wonder, I wonder whether there's just a certain amount, and I'm playing with this idea, just kind of the guilty conscience that people kind of know that this is, uh, that this is embarrassing, uh, that, that it's toxic, but you have to stick together. And the, the first time you break and you concede, you know, that the man lacks character, he lacks judgment, th- then the whole, you know, Jenga tower begins to fall down. Well, and I do think it's interesting, you know, what exactly should be the proper, you know, anti-Trump, reasonable conservative disposition towards Trump now. I think we saw this in the reaction to uh, Mitt Romney just last night on Twitter saying, you know, thank you for your endorsement, Mr. President. There was a lot of backlash among uh, conservative Trump critics. And I actually think, you know, what, what was he supposed to do? Isn't isn't the conservative, reasonable conservative line to be that you criticize Trump when he does something wrong, you support him when the policies are right? Uh, there was this idea, I guess, out there that because he's said he never would have accepted Trump's endorsement uh, back in 2012 had he known these awful things that he said, uh, that he's you know become a complete hypocrite now. I'm not so sure. I'm not sure that he that he did the wrong thing last night uh, when he accepted that, when he just politely said, thank you for your endorsement. Yeah, I, I have mixed feelings about that. I, I did tweet out something kind of snarky about it because he did back in, in March of, uh, of 2016 tweet out, Mitt Romney said, if Trump had said four years ago the things he says today about the KKK, Muslims, Mexicans, disabled, I would not, all in caps, have accepted his endorsement. And so I suppose accepting his endorsement now is kind of a big, well, never mind. Life comes at you fast, and, uh, you know, let's let bygones be bygones, which seems to be the pattern of the entire Republican Party, right? Yeah, I mean, the more the more the cynical view of that is that you can't win even in Utah running hard against President Trump. And the more uh, understanding view, I think, or sympathetic view would be that he simply thinks that, uh, you know, I'm going to criticize him when he's wrong, but I'm going to be polite and work with the president of the United States when when he's willing to work with me. Okay, now, Jonathan Lass demanded, as a condition of being on this podcast, I'm making this up, by the way, uh, that we talk about Black Panther, the Black Panther movie. Now, I have not seen the Black Panther movie. Have you gentlemen seen the Black Panther movie? I have not. I, you know, I I made a conscious decision not to see it, because as an ally of anti-racism, I did not want to be intruding upon what was a very sacred experience this weekend for, for people who are really, really into Black Panther. And so I will see it. At a later date, when I can do so without, you know, appropriating anybody's culture or something. But two hundred and eighteen million dollars. So it, it it's got to be pretty good. I mean, John Podoritz has a has a review that that says it's a uh, it's a pretty pretty darn good movie. So, first of all, no. <laughs> there are plenty of horrible horrible movies make enormous amounts of money. I think Jurassic yeah. World is yeah. like the highest grossing movie of the last so 5 years. It's terrible. And John, who I love, really really love, tremendous film critic all sorts of things. John's verdict on superhero movies is suspect because he hates the genre so much that he I mean he he trashed the uh, Chris Nolan Batman movies when they first came out and then only sort of retconned in them afterwards like 5 years later it's like oh actually okay those things are pretty good so i would just say that his his built-in bias against the genre is such that i normally don't trust his verdict on comic book movies Okay. Um, I want to uh, give a shout out to one of our advertisers before we move on, because I, I do want to get to a couple of other things, including some like things happening in the actual news. Um, RX Bar is a whole food protein bar. Now, now, what does that mean? It means that it's made with, with 100% 
natural ingredients. I mean, the, the, you know, it's, it's like eating three egg whites, three dates, six almonds, you know, and it doesn't matter. I mean, if you like sweet or savory chocolate or fruit, fruit flavors, there's, there, there's an RX bar for, for you. And RX bars come in 11 different flavors. They're gluten-free, soy-free, dairy-free, no added sugar. Uh, the, the, you know, and again, you can get chocolate sea salt, which is kind of my favorite, uh, peanut butter, blueberry, mint chocolate, and more. Um, I particularly like them for uh, breakfast on the go because I never want to sit down and actually eat uh, breakfast. So there's a special offer for our listeners for 25%. For 25% off your first order, visit rxbar.com slash standard and enter promo code standard. That's rxbar.com slash standard. Enter the promo card standard. Um, and you will get 25% off. Um, all right, gentlemen, I want, I want to, uh, I, I see there's all this speculation that we are finally uh, going to have some sort of movement on gun control, that the president has uh, signaled that he's going to support some sort of a change, a toughening in background checks for gun purchases. Uh, look, I'm, I'm old enough to, to remember that we've gone through this, I think, about 500 times, and people talk about things that are going to happen and they don't happen. So, John McCormick, is this time, is this time going to be different? Well, the specific legislation you're talking about, uh, relate, it's a response to the Sutherland Springs uh, massacre from last fall, uh, where the shooter was uh, a domestic abuser. The Air Force knew about it, I believe, or was it the Navy? And they didn't report that. So it should have been illegal for him to purchase a weapon. Uh, this legislation is meant to close that um, that loop, that, you know, that whatever went wrong. Um, but in terms of actually passing something like an, renewing an assault weapons ban, I just don't see it uh, for the very simple reason that Democrats, they don't have enough support among the Democratic Party for the assault weapons ban. Uh, you know, the assault weapons ban, Bill Clinton signed it in 94. It lapsed after 10 years in 2004. Uh, Dianne Feinstein brought it up in 2013 after the Sandy Hook massacre. And 15 Democrats voted against it. I think there are still something like nine Democrats in the Senate who uh, uh, voted against the assault weapons ban. So until Democrats start primarying their own members and get the entire Democratic Party on board for gun control, you're not going to see any real movement uh, because Republicans are univers universally opposed uh, to something like the assault weapons. I mean, I think Susan Collins even opposed it back in 2013. Okay, there's a new uh, Washington Post poll says that more than 6 in 10 Americans fault Congress and President Trump for not doing enough to prevent mass shootings. But does that actually change any of the political dynamic, uh, Jonathan? Last, I mean, look, obviously, look, I, I come from this from a very, very cynical point of view, which is that if, if the Newtown shootings didn't lead to anything, um, if even after what happened in Las Vegas, we couldn't even have a ban on bump stocks, I think it's naive to think that, that Washington's going to do anything about guns in, in the wake of, uh, of what happened in Florida. I think that's correct. Uh, and, I, and I say this as an analytical matter. I have no... No brief for the Second Amendment myself. If if somebody proposed a trade tomorrow where we trade, uh, I don't know, like a, a constitutional amendment guaranteeing religious liberty or, you know, uh, outlawing abortion, but we got to repeal the Second Amendment, I would take that trade in a heartbeat. Um, so that, But just this is an analytical matter, not a personal preference. I agree with you completely. Uh, just the incentive structure politically is lined up so that uh, the the— very large minority of people who would like to stop there being gun reforms uh, 
is there. This is how the political system is designed. When you have a large minority who feels very passionately pit, pitted against a majority who feels, yeah, a little bit, they kind of would prefer to do something when it's really in the news, but otherwise they forget about it. Uh, that minority is going to get their way. And that's where we are. And I'm, by the way, minority, I don't mean it's like, it's like 40%, 45% of the country who feels really, really strongly about this. And that's, I don't know. I mean, on the one hand, as I said, I, I am agnostic on a lot of these, these things and be happy to fence in uh, some some of the gun rights. But on the other hand, this is how our constitutional system is designed to work. And I'm, I'm happy to respect that process. You know, John, I, I, I see a lot of the um, the criticism of the Republicans and the NRA focusing on how much money the NRA gives to various campaigns. Now, my reaction to that is that that fundamentally misunderstands the way this issue actually plays out, that that it's that Republicans are unwilling to break with the NRA, not because of the campaign cash, but because of these really intensely motivated voters out there who actually uh, will get hair on fire if, if, uh, if anybody lines up behind something like the assault weapons ban. Yeah, I mean, if, 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 you know, if the NRA went away tomorrow, there would still be all these pro-gun voters. And I don't think that things would change at all if that money went away. And, you know, I mean, the Democrats themselves, when they were in power from, you know, they had complete control from 2009 to 2011. They had 59 or 60 senators, huge majority in the House, and they brought up a grand total of zero gun control bills in the House or Senate. And so we're, we're, they were they were responding to voters there. They were scared. And I think that explains some of the intensity. I think there's a guilt factor there among Democrats. Uh, Barack Obama, 1996 had a questionnaire in which he said he favored a handgun ban then when he ran for president mm-hmm. in 2008 no no that that my handwriting's there but i didn't that that was some campaign staffer who filled that out so i think that the democrats do feel guilty that they threw gun control because they actually believe in this stuff but they threw it by the wayside to get elected and i said i think that explains some of the intensity in addition to the the fact that they actually believe in it i think there's some guilt uh mm-hmm. for abandoning what they believe is right to win elections do they believe it though i, I yeah. i've always gotten the sense that they believe in gun control as much as they believe in climate change which is to say that it's a pose they're happy to, to make. It doesn't actually affect most of their lives. Most of them live in urban areas where there isn't a lot of uh, gun, gun crime. Uh, Democrats are largely upscale now. I, I don't know. This strikes me as something which to many Democrats, especially many Democratic politicians, is a pose or position of political necessity, not something that they really care about in the way that they really care about, like, uh, identity politics or, you know, massive government expansion or healthcare reform. Well, you know, and also it's kind of a pose for Republicans as well. I actually come from Wisconsin where, you know, everybody's a hunter, everybody does it. But but I'll tell you, in, in, in private, I don't know many Republicans who uh, want to die on the hill of the, of the AR-15, of the assault weapon, but they have to go along with it. And, you know, we're going to get into immigration in a moment. This strikes me as one of those issues where if you had reasonable people from the center right and the center left sit down, that there would be a compromise. But the extremes on both sides just just drive the political parties that, you know, there was a time, of course, when Republicans would favor reasonable common sense approaches to gun control. But the NRA now takes an absolutely absolutist position on this and you can't you can't budge at all. And I think, unfortunately, that uh, that kind of describes a lot of the issues we're going to be talking about. 
Well, I'm not a gun rights nut, but I think there is. I mean, the reasonable, the reason, part of the reason that the assault weapons ban failed is that there is a reasonable argument against it. And that's that, I mean, a lot of these features are, you know, somewhat cosmetic. I mean, an assault rifle, Mm -hmm. a semi-automatic rifle that that has a, you know, 30 round magazines is going to be marginally more lethal. You're more accurate from a a longer distance, Uh, but you can do great, great damage with standard issue handguns. I mean, the Virginia Tech massacre, uh, where the students were locked in, they were chained in by the the, the killer. Uh, the guy had two standard handguns. I believe mm-hmm. One had 10 rounds and one had 15 round magazines. And he murdered 27 people. So, uh, you know, what we're ta- I think we have to put things in context here. What, what Gun control is for a lot of Democrats. It's a way to to signal their goodness. Their, you know, it, it is to a certain degree. It's to prove that you're a good person. But what we're really debating here is whether or not uh, some greater restrictions on guns would marginally reduce the death toll. And I think that's something worth considering. I mean, if we sure. could get, uh, you know, high capacity magazines restricted, I do think that you would have uh, lower death tolls in these massacres. And we have every right to care about these things, uh, even though they, they rec- we have a right to care about these massacres, even though they represent a very small number percentage wise of overall gun deaths every year. Yeah. Yeah. And there are, I mean, I would say this because I don't want to send like too much like a, like the commie I am. Um, the, the left is terrible on this stuff. I mean, if you look at the arguments that the left often advances in the wake of these things, they are often the the worst arguments focusing on the, the any club at hand. Yeah. And this is one of those cases where I would totally agree. I, I am not in general a fan of saying, well, you know, if you took 50 people from the phone book at random, they could work things mm-hmm. out. I actually think that's true. You're right here, Charlie. 50 people at random could work this out. But the other thing is that the actual control of weapons is not the only vector that you can attack this problem on. Uh, we have a piece that's coming in the magazine this week, and uh, other people have written about this in the past. Um, so there is a whole lot of research that's been done in criminal psychology on why we've seen these big spree killings turn into sort of a, a mushroom effect. And the answer is that the type of People who are mentally unstable, who are attracted to this stuff, really get off on the idea of being famous. And there's there's Mm. an enormous amount of literature. If you care about this stuff, you could find it all in about five minutes on Google. Uh, I mean, if you got 15 people in a room uh, together today, the people who run the New York Times, NBC News, ABC, CNN, Fox News, etc., and you worked out a set of protocols that say that we are not going to name and picture the people who perpetrate these things. We are going to make them anonymous. Uh, that this is another way you can attack the epidemic of spree killings. And, but yet this is, never gets talked about because, as I said, the people on the left have, aren't really interested in this stuff. They're interested in posing. And, uh, and I don't know, one of these days maybe people will actually get serious about trying to, to go after the root causes here. Yeah, and I also think we need to remember the distinction between remedies and solutions, that, that simply because a proposal is not going to solve the problem doesn't mean that you turn your back on something that might uh, have, you know, some, some you know, uh, minor uh, effect on it. Which, by the way, then le- leads me to the, the final thing I wanted to uh, talk about uh, w- with you, uh, with John McCormick, uh, on the issue of immigration. It certainly looks like there was a—, a reasonable possibility that there was going to be a compromise. You know, Donald Trump was going to get his $25 billion for the wall. The Democrats were going to get amnesty for 1.5, you know, 1.8 million 
uh, illegal immigrants uh, under the under the DACA uh, program, and yet it's all blown up. So who who was the most pigheaded? Who basically scuttled what should have been a reasonable win-win for either for both sides? Uh, you know, I think it's it's even equal. They're equally to blame. I think that there's no reason that the Democrats couldn't have offered some minor compromise on this issue of chain migration. I think that they did that back in the Gang of Eight bill, and they never really could explain why that issue could only be dealt with uh, in a comprehensive immigration reform bill. On the other hand, I mean, with with Trump, you're left guessing what does he actually want. I think that from my, he says different things. I mean, back in January 9th, he said he would sign whatever bill that came up, and then I think basically. You know, Stephen Miller and John Kelly and staff persuaded him. No, you've got to you've got to dig in on these different issues. But I think Trump. I mean, you're left guessing. What does he actually believe? Because he says so many different things. I think in Trump's gut, in his heart, he wants the wall. He campaigned on the wall. He didn't campaign on chain migration. And so uh, I thought he would have been desperate to trade anything in exchange for quote unquote the wall. I mean, this is the guy who claimed that Obamacare was repealed simply because they got at the individual mandate. Uh, you know, so will there be some last second uh, cave? I, it, it doesn't look likely right now. I think that he's basically outsourced his thinking on this to his staff. And uh, Stephen Miller decided, you know, back in December 2015, he's going to put all of his chips on Donald Trump and uh, it paid off. He won. So he right now is playing a huge role in uh, directing immigration policy. With that said, I don't see why Democrats couldn't necessarily compromise on some issue of chain migration where you sort of kept overall immigration levels the same, uh, replace some of this family-based migration with employment-based, merit-based, whatever you want to call it. Okay, so what happens to the Dreamers uh, after after March? Nobody seems to be taking this, uh, this seriously, the deadline seriously. But, I mean, are we going to start to see television news shows with uh, young Dreamers who are being deported? I think you're going to see a, a definitely like a non-trivial number, but the question is really whether or not Trump and the, you know, directs the DHS to actually target dreamers. I think that's unlikely, but there will be some non-zero number of people who are, uh, you know, deported and that will cause a lot of uh, you know drama in the media it will cause a lot of pain for those individuals uh, who after living here for most of their lives uh, are uprooted but I don't know if it'll be enough to actually force a compromise gentlemen thanks so much for joining me I appreciate this very very much and thank you for listening to the daily standard podcast I'm Charlie Sykes and we will be back to do this all over again tomorrow